Hello, hello, hello. I never, you know, I never figured you for an Ant-Man fan. I am apologizing for being late. You're, are you telling me that the writer of World War Z is Mel Brooks' grandson? It's the story of how cucumbers came to Earth and took over. Hello, this is Max and Jason watching movie. I'm Max. And I'm Jason. And in this episode, we will be reviewing Invasion of the Body Snatchers from 1978, starring Donald Sutherland, Brooke Adams, Leonard Nimoy, Jeff Goldblum, and Veronica Cartwright. And it, the film was directed by Philip Kaufman. Now, has Philip Kaufman done a lot? I didn't get a chance to look anything up about him. He has not. Well, actually, I can talk a little bit about Philip Kaufman. Um, uh, Philip Kaufman was um, a director. He was from that era of George Lucas and Steven Spielberg and Francis Ford Coppola, that whole group of young mavericks um, okay. that included, you know, a, a, a bunch of names, some of whom some people would know, some people wouldn't know. Philip Kaufman's one that a lot of people don't know. I didn't. Um, he, uh, uh, aside from doing this film, uh, he directed The Right Stuff in the 80s. Okay. okay. Um, that, has a, that has a few actors from this movie in it. Jeff Goldblum okay, yeah. in The Right Stuff. Um, right. Is Donald Sutherland in The Right Stuff? I don't remember. I don't remember either. I don't remember. Uh, but probably the, the place that you've most seen Philip Kaufman's name is in the opening credits of Raiders of the Lost Ark because he was very good friends with George Lucas. Uh, Lucas had um, was working on Star Wars. Uh, I think it was in 1975. Mm -hmm. And Lucas wanted to do this adventure film that was a you know a, a tribute to the to the old serials and he was with Philip Kaufman and the two of them kind of came up with the outline for Raiders of the Lost Ark together okay which is why when you watch Raiders of the Lost Ark it, it says story by George Lucas Philip Kaufman okay and but what happened was they sat down like over a bottle of wine or something and they came up with the outline of the Lost Ark and Indiana Jones although I think that wasn't his name originally and they came up with the basic story outline the Nazis and all that stuff. And then Kaufman went away to to basically work on other things. Okay. And um, and he and he never then ended up coming back to it. So Kaufman helped come up with the story for Raiders of the Lost Ark. Uh, and then he never worked with Lucas again on the Indiana Jones idea. He's kind of a known name. He just yeah. he's one of those directors that doesn't make a lot of movies or not very frequently. Yeah. And a lot of his films tend to be more kind of I don't know if I want to say highbrow, but you know, they're not necessarily blockbusters or you know films that the average person would go would just be sure that they go to see gotcha. um but uh but, but he not, was he, he's not a marquee director is what you're saying yeah yeah but 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 he was part of that generation of, of young directors who who came out of film school and wanted to change the world now this is an interesting year i was just just thinking about the saying in the production side of things um there were a lot of good science fiction movies that came out in 78 and this was uh you know some not as well received as others this was one of the ones that was pretty well received but i was looking at the list for 78 and there's I think it's Alien, Superman, Time After Time Mad Max, Coma it's, I'm going to throw this in here too and some people might not think that this is good science fiction but I, I I have a soft spot in my heart for Escape from Witch Mountain you know okay. but I mean it was a popular movie this film had at the time critically mixed reviews currently it's it's considered one of the great films uh, at Rotten Tomatoes it gets 93% sorry on IMDb it gets 7.4 which is a yeah. respectable score on, on IMDb yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, they, they have they rate their films a little differently and I, I think that a 7.4 on IMDb is like mil maybe millions of users casting a vote. So that's that's pretty respectable. Yeah. I think yeah. anything over seven is great on IMDb. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I think I think Rotten Tomatoes and anybody who listens to this can write in and correct me if I'm wrong. But I think Rotten Tomatoes depends a lot more heavily on the uh, actual critic reviews to do their freshness rating, right? right. But this film did pretty well at the box office. It uh, did. A uh, budget of like just a little over three million and gross 25 million. I mean, that's another good sign. Uh, you know, if you're making 
making $25 million against three. It, it definitely made its money back. Um, it, it was a respectable minor hit. It was not a runaway. Uh, $25 million would be considered a flop today, but really in 1978, it would not have been. Sidebar. Adjusting $1978 to $2,021 would give us about $99 million, close to $100 million gross for this film, which would be a moderate success by today's standards. Uh, anything over $100 million is it's doing all right. Um, not blockbuster by any means, but worth uh, making the film. <laughs> anyway, so into the sidebar. I think if your budget's three million, you make twenty five. That's 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 good movie. That's oh yeah, good, that's good filmmaking. Uh, Absolutely, uh, yeah. Especially against a, a, a Christmas time release, which is when this was released. It was released uh, in December or sometime in that area of seventy eight. Yeah. Um, this is uh, one of your babies, Jason. So how do you want to proceed? Yeah. I don't I don't want to tread on any of your sacred cows or your sacred your sacred pods. Well, uh, but you know, but feel free to do so because um, I, I will confess. Uh, I'll, I'll as with Superman the movie I'll, I'll kind of lead with my love uh because i i'm very attached to this movie it it, it um and, and i might need to be talked down from the from the ledge i guess a little bit uh, but i don't think so i i I, uh, I first discovered this movie uh when i was in high school cinemax would show it often during the day really, really? yeah and and uh, i always would catch the second half of it and the first time that i did i i watched it because it had leonard nimoy in it and I, it was interesting to see him play somebody besides spock and i just kind of, I, I remember kind of just watching it being mildly entertained by it but then being really affected by by the the ending of the movie yep. that really stayed in my head for years i've gone back to revisit this movie this is probably my thing you know in our oh, last yeah, yeah, episode yeah, yeah. you talked about how the thing is a film that you go back and watch you know twice a year or so and i would be with you if i owned it yeah. or if it was streaming i also would watch that i've watched it since this is my thing it's interesting that we're doing invasion of the smart the, the smart body snatchers the body snatchers on the heels of our last podcast about the thing because there are a lot of structural similarities to the film there and are. there are even uh, plot elements uh, plot tones maybe I don't know there are story tones that are uh, similar there's a lot of paranoia there's a lot of who can you trust and so so there's a lot of similarities to the films I think they're different enough that you can say that they're uh, like 1982 thing didn't ape this movie but uh, they're, they're also they're both based on classic science fiction stories and classic science fiction movies this yep. is a remake of uh, I, what, what year did the original film come out? I, I believe it was 1954. Okay, okay. It was 1954. The original is an iconic film. The original is an iconic film and actually uh, I, I have seen it numerous times. I, I, I didn't see it first. Yeah. It was uh, 1956. Okay. Um, I did not see it first. I went back to watch it uh, after I'd seen the 78 version several times and, and was very impressed. Yeah. I mean, actually, that's another thing that John Carpenter's The Thing and this movie have in common is that they fought is that they follow their source material very well yeah. and in a very original way but the source material itself is uniquely worth watching yeah. because I would say because uh, we talked about the a little bit about the thing last time I would argue that I mean there's lots of people that are fans of, of 50s sci-fi genre um, you know some of those films have aged better than others but I actually think that Invasion of the Body Snatchers and The Thing and perhaps the day that the Earth stood still are probably the best films from that era or that genre I don't know maybe 
Godzilla, King of the Monsters. But, but, but no, I mean, these are really, really great films. The original Invasion of the Body Snatchers, you'd be surprised how watchable it is. I, I mean, I've seen it, and I remember liking it quite a lot. It, it didn't grab me in the same in the same way that the, the thing from another world, the Hawks version of this did. But I agree, they're both affecting films. But something that's interesting to me, and I'll just bring this up now, uh, this film, the 78 version of Invasion of the Body Snatchers, and John Carpenter's 1982 version of The Thing, violate both of our rules about remakes. So I, I, I kind of agree with Roger Ebert, and I think Jason does too, that the movies that you should remake are the ones that didn't work, right? There's right. They had good ideas, like somebody should come in and remake Superman 4, right? That's a movie right. that definitely is crying out for a better treatment. Uh, yeah. But there are other films like that as well that needed a remake. But you remake movies that need work, is what Ebert mm-hmm. thinks you should do. Well, that's got great ideas, let's redo that. There's no reason to remake Psycho. Right. And one would think there's no reason to remake The Thing from Another World or Invasion of the Body Snatchers, but but these two films prove us wrong, I think, in that a little bit. Yeah. Uh, but why, of course why, they... why is that, do you think? Why do you think that that is, that they prove us wrong? For this film, we can get into that a little bit later when we yeah. talk, uh, because, I mean, I, I uh, intend to compare and contrast the ending yeah. Yeah. of this film and the original film. Uh, but in terms of The Thing, I think that there was an attempt not to just try to just redo the story, yeah. but rather to take those thematic elements and kind of recast them in uh, just a different way that's compelling in a different way. And because what you want to try to do, what a director should try to do if they're going to do a remake, okay, you know, I don't want to compete with the original film, but I need to give the viewer a reason to watch mine, not instead of the original, but to watch mine in addition to the original. And I think that's what John Carpenter succeeded. I I think Kaufman does as well, but we'll we'll get into the reasons why. But I like that that thing that you just said, like uh, you want to reinterpret the film not to to be because you want people to watch your new movie but not right. not avoid the original I think both of these story, both of these things have in their favor too source material that people could go back to and say well this is something that the, the original didn't capture so we can pull right. that out of the the, the source material yes. question the, the yes. stories because the Carpenter version of the thing of course hews much more closely to the who goes there story I haven't read I haven't read Body Snatchers uh, by Kenny I think it is um, yeah I haven't either both of these remakes do different things and I think it's I just think it's neat that we decided to talk about we just we picked another one that violates our rule yeah uh, yeah uh, strangely the jason just mentioned uh, another great science fiction piece of the 50s which was the day the earth stood still the remake of that does go back to justifying our rule <laughs> of don't make a sequel to a great movie uh yeah, anyway i just wanted to just wanted to slide that in there before we moved on <laughs> So what is the body set? What is the invasion of the body snatchers, Jason? Well, uh, it, it, it's um, it's the story of how cucumbers came to Earth and took over. No, well, not quite. Well, you know, cucumbers might have been more expensive than what they actually ended up doing. Yeah. Um, the the, uh, uh, the the story begins on a on a, on a dead world. Yeah. Uh, which, by the way, um, I read that Kaufman's idea. Kaufman didn't write the screenplay. J.D. Yeah. Richter wrote the screenplay. But that the, uh, the the idea was, and this was an idea, and this was a perspective that I hadn't really thought about even after seeing the film all, uh, all these years, that these beings, these aliens on this planet had abused and overused all their resources and burned this planet out. Gotcha. So the opening scene, we see this dead world. Coffin said the intention was for us to assume that this world was a lot like Earth at one point. Okay. And, and these creatures have ab- abused their resources and now they're kind of just these, uh, this kind of, uh, I don't know. Protoplasm almost, yeah. There's, yeah, there's, yeah. Like and, almost and, like and the interstitial, interstitial fluid you might find in a cell or something like that. Yes. Yeah, 
and they're and they're they're caught by the solar winds, and uh, uh, they travel across the universe. Um, this is a this is a neat concept, and uh, we we see this in uh, astrobiology, referred to sometimes as like panspermia, where. Uh, <coughs> small microscopic life forms maybe seed other planets because uh, things like bacteria can, can survive in space, you know, yeah. uh, provided they have a little shelter. Um, they just kind of go into some kind of torpor or hibernation and, and then can be revived later on. And so this is a, a neat idea that I, this is one of the only points I have a kind of a problem with the effects and the scoring of the movie. Um, mm-hmm. When the when the creatures are flying through space, not flying, but they're just being kind of drift, you know, they drift like a, like flotsam and jetsam in the ocean, right? Right. Um, uh, uh, and, uh, and they make their way to Earth, but I found the score here and the effects to not be very compelling to me. In fact, I felt a little bad because I laughed out loud when uh, the aliens finally do make landfall because the, the score just sounded somewhat to me like what might have happened in like a, a campier science fiction movie. That's, yeah, the, uh, that's the only moment where I, 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 I was jarred out of the of the film by the score, but it just didn't work for me in this scene. And that's that's probably the only scene where it really jars me. Well, I, I see, I caught that too, uh, the score score was done by uh, Denny Zeitlin and uh, when, when I examined his uh, uh, the work that he'd done he, he's not a composer who had done extensive work so this was his only film I, I read okay yeah I mean um, he was a jazz musician um, he was a jazz musician yeah and some and, of that works really well later on in the film but look some of the cues in the film are absolutely perfect yep. just that mm-hmm. just the scene and, and I want to be specific here it's just the scene of the, the organisms floating through space the effects are fine for the time, uh, but and I'll, I'll say this too in a second though. The font of the of the credits actually threw me off uh, as a kid, oh. and and I'll tell you why in a minute. I thought this was always a movie intended for TV. I thought this was a made for TV movie when I saw it many years ago because it reminded me of like a like Magnum PI font or television font of the era, you know, uh, or A Team font. And I was like, is this a TV movie? And I did see it on TV originally when I first saw yeah, well, it. Well, yeah, me too, me too. Um, I thought that those effects and that score are the are really the weakest points of the. Film. Well, you know, and, and that's a good moment to actually talk a little bit about, uh, you know, just film score in general, because really the idea of, of um, movies having great, really great composers creating great pieces for movies, that developed very slowly, right from the time of the silent film, when you would have music accompaniment and this yeah. kind of thing. A, a lot of this music was just, just kind of thrown together, yeah. you know, uh, just like in early television, you know, the you have just melodramatic music that's just kind of, well, we got to put music in here, it doesn't have to be anything anything yeah. real great and i think that's what you're talking about uh, because I, that did occur to me during the opening scene that okay you know these this section of music is more like the kind of music you would find in a in a television show yeah then, and that, that sort of struck me and that's what kind of really stood out to me in the opening credits was i was well, this does reinforce my idea that this was a television movie um but uh like i said that's the weakest the score is the score works a lot better and i think most of the other scenes and the effects work really well actually after this i think uh so uh Yes, well, so, well, well, but, but, but you know, I, I would ask you, or, or I would qualify for you, this opening scene, when the effects work and when they don't. Yeah. And see, I would concede that the early effects on the planet and going through space is a little dated. Yeah. But once once the gelatin uh, uh, makes landfall. Yes, yes. Um, it changes quickly. Well, I, um, I, I actually, in my notes, I have, uh, so so the these life forms land on Earth and they start attaching to plants. Yeah. And, uh, and then they start kind of merging their physiology with plant physiology 
physiology. And I wrote in my notes, this effect of parasitism on these plants is really good because the yeah. it's like these little tendrils of uh, veins that look mm -hmm. very much like plant veins and start emerging out of this, the ooze and parasitizing the leaves of plants that they find on earth, uh, that they land on on earth. And it's very, it's very effective. It's very good stuff. I, I it's, it, uh, it and, and it's, in, and it's in close up. Yeah, absolutely. No, the, yeah, they yeah. hold up very well. It's, it's very good. The audience, as the audience, we get a sense that things are about to be bad for planet earth a lot yeah. sooner than the, than the characters do. The gelatin uh, cost $5. Did it so, really? Yeah. The so, so, these, so these effect scenes, I mean, you, you could say they look dated for a reason. Well, I, I think the gelatin effect scenes are fine. I, you know, I, yeah, uh, yeah. I didn't have a problem with those. And I mean, I didn't have to do like for the opening credits, I had to say, well, this is 78. Yeah. I have to yeah. make an allowance. I didn't, I didn't feel like I had to make an allowance for the gelatin effects. So we're seeing people move around yeah. these parasitized plants. Another problem I do have with the film is this uh, pot forwarding mechanism that one of our heroes has to engage in. She, her name is, uh, she's the first, she's the uh, first hero we meet, right? Uh, what's her name, Jason? Elizabeth Driscoll. Elizabeth Driscoll. Elizabeth Driscoll, these, our heroes are from the health department. She's the first one we meet briefly, right? And then we... Uh, well, I mean, first we see uh, a teacher. No, you're right. We see her first. She, and she, she grabs the plant. She grabs and the she, plant. And, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to skip forward a little bit. So she sees this plant. She says, oh, this is interesting. Um, while she's taking the plant, by the way, there is a fascinating and very weird cameo that happens in the film that I don't quite understand. These kids are all playing very happily among the, the playground. And there's a priest on a swing, swinging back and forth and looking at everything very, very creepily. And yeah. that priest is Bob Duvall. Duvall. I call him Bob. I don't know why. <laughs> uh, Robert Duvall is the priest in the film. Before we move on, do you know the story about the cameo? Well, uh, he, he, he did it for nothing. He happened to be in town. Yeah. And, and he agreed to do it. And I think they, they just gave him a jacket or something. Like it was, it was a, yeah, it was a it was an Eddie Bauer jacket, I think. Yeah, 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 that was it. Yeah. So somebody gave him an Eddie Bauer jacket, and he decided, and he he, he was he was cool being a creepy priest. Mm -hmm. that's, the, that's the first and only time you're going to see him. Well, of course, if you're a cinemaphile and you're sitting in the audience in 1978, you probably wonder what Robert Duvall is doing in this movie. Well, but um, I mean, he wasn't a household name, but he was a face. He was in yeah. uh, The Godfather. He was in The Godfather by that point. He was the bad guy in uh, True Grit. And but he's he'd been he'd been a solid working actor in a lot of things. Yeah, so. absolutely. So anyway, Elizabeth Driscoll takes the flower, goes home, and finds her husband, boyfriend, boyfriend, sitting yeah. on the couch. But she tells her her boyfriend, hey, look, I found this plant. I think it's a hybrid of, of two dangerous plants. Yeah. And I, I saw it growing all over the park. Okay, health department lady, where kids play, why didn't you go back with the health department, get those plants, remove them, and why did you put this plant on your nightstand, is what I wanted to ask. I asked her. It reminded me of that scene from uh, Prometheus when uh, the biologist sees the, the snake thing that's clearly aggressive and reaches out and grabs it for no reason and then gets killed by it. But uh, Does she say that it's dangerous? She says it's dangerous, yeah. Huh. She says, I think it's dangerous. Uh, she, but she thought it was a hybrid of a couple different plants. You know, it's I wouldn't bring that into my home. I certainly wouldn't. I mean, I might do that, but I wouldn't put it by my bedside table. Well, I mean, that's probably true, but there again, and she didn't expect it to do anything. But anyway, I just thought that was a, I thought that was a little silly. And I, I thought it was unnecessary too, given how many people were going to be exposed to, to this plant. She's not patient zero or her boyfriend isn't patient zero for this, right? Right. So you didn't have to have her first inkling that something was wrong. You didn't have to have our hero's first inkling be, 
that something is wrong originate within their particular orbit of friends. You know what I mean? Yeah. But you know, I just thought, why are you violating? Why are you violating protocols, lady? Why are you bringing this dangerous organism into your home? Well, it was also 1978. Well, you know, protocols uh, might have been very different back then. They certainly were in the restaurant where we meet uh, down southern later on. Anyway, take it away, Jason. I'm sorry. There's other things about this scene that that I think are done that are done very well. Before we see Robert Duvall, after we meet Elizabeth, Elizabeth she, she plucks the flower and she smells it, and and then we see her walk past this class that's come from school, yeah. and the teacher kind of turns and 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 looks very paranoid as she looks at Elizabeth. Yeah. And then we hear her say to the children, "Aren't they pretty? Be sure to pick one and take it home to your parents." Ah. Yeah. So I didn't notice that. The assumption is that this this lady is is no longer a human. She's yeah, yeah. She, when Elizabeth gets the the flower, the, the the process has already been going on for who knows how long. Yeah. So already there are some people that have been replaced. Yeah. And um, the priest apparently, I think we're to assume is one. I think I think we're definitely to assume he's one. I very much like how, and I know that Kaufman wanted to do this, uh, the portrayal of paranoia. Uh, and, and and actually, I believe he chose to set to set this film in San Francisco, which was his favorite city. Okay. Very very much even to this day, but but even then a very progressive city, a city where people dance to the beat of of their own drum, basically. Yeah. Uh, they're very much individuals, and then and then Elizabeth comes home, and we kind of see that also. Like one of the things that you know that I noticed that the screenplay does and that the film does is that when we get to know these characters, the film goes out of its way to show us some of the, the little aspects of their personality. Uh, not all of them positive. No, Elizabeth's no, no. boyfriend is, is addicted. He's an addicted fan of the Golden State Warriors. He's uh, he watches the games with headphones, massive headphones. Yeah, yeah. in which in which he's basically he's checked out from I mean if they redid this film now he would be on his phone or something yeah, yeah, yeah. you know but he's even uh, watching this 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 stuff in his bedroom yeah yeah he, and then and then all she tried, right I'll tr- yeah, yeah. She, she tries to go up and talk to him in the bedroom and she's like I can't think or I can't talk with you having this uh I'll put my headphones on yeah that, it doesn't improve yeah. things buddy when I'm trying to have a, a conversation with her and doesn't isn't that the point where she goes and, and meets the Donald Sutherland character Matthew Bennell yeah two um <laughs> Right. Not not quite yet because they... um, you see his character through his inspection of a French restaurant. Yeah, we switch to that, and he goes to the restaurant. He finds a uh, a rat turd. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. In the Which, vigisoir or whatever, whatever, whatever it is. Whatever it is. I could the not stalk. spot the a rat turd in boiling water, but this guy's good. <laughs> this guy's good. Well, Max, it, it is a kipper. Kipper, a kipper. <laughs> yeah. I'm convinced that it was a rat turd because the guy, the the rest, the head of the restaurant would not eat it. Right. And he's going. I'm going to have you, uh, Ornery. I'm going to have you uh close down for a bit yeah yeah because because if it wasn't a rat turd and maybe even if it was yeah. you would be better to go ahead and eat it because then the evidence is gone yeah exactly exactly you know and it's been boiled so it's probably fine right, um, right. but i've never seen so he's he's writing up Henri and his chef probably wondering why they don't clean out the the vents above the grill line, which is, that's where I would guess that the rat poop came from, uh, from above the food. I've never seen as robust a defense of owners of a restaurant by the grill line as we see in this film. One of the, one of the bussers or one of the short order cooks or somebody goes out and smashes Matthew's window. 
you know, and this is very interesting. This is, I mean, I, I, I think I know where you're going with this. I, it seems excessive. It seems almost unrealistic. But Kaufman talked about this. Yeah. That that living in big cities, this happens all the time. Yeah. Now, I don't think it does. But I think that actually, for those of us who are younger, and yeah. we are, yeah. <laughs> relative to this movie, yeah. Um, I, I think crime in big cities is has gotten a lot better since this film was made. Oh, I think so. I, I didn't think that it was necessarily super unrealistic. I mean, if you're a, if you're a, if you're a cook in a restaurant and you're not a head chef at a, at a fine, you know, five-star establishment, my guess is that in San Francisco, it's certainly the case now that if you're in a place like that and you're not part of the core staff, you're living paycheck to paycheck. And if I just heard yeah. that my job was going to be shut down for two weeks, I, my ass would be chapped, you know, yeah, yeah. and it wouldn't necessarily be for the owners who, you know, are not paying you a living wage and, you know, right. doing all the things they should be doing. So that would make me mad, but I'm also not going to jail for vandalism. So that's going to be somebody else's job. Matthew does treat it like it's just a normal event because he doesn't confront anybody about it. He just drives away, right? you know, through his, uh, this, and just looks through the spider web front windshield. But anyway, he's an interesting character. He seems to like his job. Seems very good at it. Where that's, I think that's something we're supposed to derive from this character introduction. There's a couple other things. Some of these scenes, uh, I, as, I, as I was talking about Elizabeth's boyfriend, some of these scenes, I think, are meant to show human beings acting very passionate. Emotionally. And I think, yeah, emotionally. Like, so like even these cooks, you just described accurately their motivation. They're angry. They're yeah. pissed off. They, they take action against uh, uh, Matthew. So there's kind of this this world in which people respond to situations emotionally, as people do. Yeah. And the film goes out of its way to show some of these little moments. Yeah, yeah. No, that um, makes sense. So then he comes home, you get, then he gets home, and he calls Elizabeth, because, and then it's revealed to us that they work together. Yeah. Uh, and they're friends. They're, they're, they're really good friends. I like their friendship, but to me, this friendship is, uh, it's very close, and it has like that hint of danger, uh, romantic danger. Oh, Matthew Matthew hints all the time that he he feels that he would be a better partner for Elizabeth than her boyfriend. He, she he hints at that sometimes too. Yeah, well, yeah, well, but but I mean, he, clearly he's staying in his lane. He definitely. Um, what does he say? The Warriors won, so your household must be happy tonight. Yeah. Your household meaning him, not yeah, her. Yeah. yeah. So, and then he asks her to come in early to run tests. Yeah. She initially says no. Finally, agrees to do it. Yeah. Um, hangs up the phone, and then we have the close-up of the cord going into the wall. Yeah. Which was uh, on the one hand. What is that? What is it? That's in her house, right? That's at her house. It was done a lot of the little shots up to this point. I heard Kaufman, or I read that he that he had said this, mm -hmm. that a lot of these little shots at the, uh, in early in the film, he wants to give the viewer a sense that, because the viewer doesn't yet really know what's going on, yeah. but that things are not what they seem. Yeah. That there's something, there's something wrong with the world. All these characters are kind of going about their business. They're doing their usual things, but there's something going on under the surface that they are unaware of. But we, the viewer, I mean, we've actually seen... The gelatin arrive uh, on planet Earth, and and we're constantly given these hints that all of this stuff is taking place. Now we're not necessarily seeing it happen, yeah, yeah. but it, but it's happening. Uh, and then I think, um, well, the next day when they're at work and they're walking down the corridor, this is before she starts to worry that that her boyfriend is not her boyfriend. They're walking down the corridor at work, and there's this weird guy staring out of his door through the frosted glass. And I mean, it is, it, it's creepy. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but it's just in the background enough that it's something that people don't notice. It's somebody curious. I mean, I don't even know. He's, this, this figure is looming almost, kind of checking to see who's out there. We don't know oh, if this is a person who is paranoid 
paranoid thinking that people yeah. are, is this a person that is a human who's caught on to right, something yeah. wrong? Or is this a, is this a alien that's looking for allies? We don't know. Cause I, you know, that, that, that person is, I don't think that person ever comes up again in the, in the no, movie. No, they don't. And actually there's, uh, there's three instances in what you're talking about. Well, first of all, I guess we do need to say, you're right. She's not necessarily suspecting Jeffrey, but Jeffrey was replaced. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And which, when you've watched the, the film several times, as I have. As you have. It, it's actually, um, it's kind of a gripping uh, or maybe sad moment to watch when Jeffrey and Elizabeth are going to bed. Because we, the viewer, know, or if you've seen it several times, if you've seen it for the first time, you at least suspect that Elizabeth doesn't know this, but she's really never going to speak to Jeffrey again. Oh, absolutely. Because, Je- because Jeffrey will be gone. And if you recall, Jeffrey, he says, you know, let's go away somewhere. I can't remember where. Yeah. But so the film definitely creates the uh, the sense that Jeffrey is is uh, is very spontaneous. Maybe that's the reason Elizabeth likes him because she has plenty of reasons not to like him. Yeah. But he is the type of guy like, hey, let's go skiing or whatever. And so they make these plans. They go to bed. And then we cut to the alarm. She rolls over. Jeffrey's already dressed in his suit. And he's finishing sweeping up. The plant, yeah. Yeah, the, the, the broken glass. And she says, what, what are you doing? How long have you been up? And he says, not long. And then he just kind of walks away. Yeah. She sees him go outside. She sees him um, dump something in a, in a trash truck. Yeah. We'll, find out later. We'll, we'll find out later what we think yeah. that might be. Now, the trash guy is also one. I think. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So, but then she, you know, there's the scene you were talking about where the guy's looking through the window. There's two other moments that occur in that sequence. One, when they're walking into the health department, into this, it's the city building, Yeah. the the San Francisco city building, which is uh, when they're walking towards the building, Mm -hmm. there's an older guy in glasses who, when the scene opens, he's sprinting across the street. Like he's running like hell to get away from somebody. We don't know what I, I think we can probably, assume that he's a human who, 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 you know, he he stumbled onto what's going on. He's scared as shit and he's just, he's off running. But, but Matthew and Elizabeth pay no attention to him yeah. and they just go in and then there's another moment in the same hallway that you're talking about where she bumps into a fellow and she turns to look at him and he looks at her and he looks suspicious yeah you know what does that exchange mean she doesn't think much of it we the viewer do yeah I remember that scene too but they don't really touch on it again is that guy one of the aliens uh, yeah I, I think maybe he's he's like the guy running across the, mm-hmm. the lawn which is, is something which, which makes sense that 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 Matthew and Elizabeth wouldn't pay attention to a guy, you know, running hell for leather across the lawn. During another scene where a crazy person accosts them, the actor ended up himself getting accosted by a naked guy. Yeah. And the the the, the naked guy says to him, the original was better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. We'll get to that yeah. scene in a bit, but... There's this kind of growing creepiness and paranoia that that we see infecting San Francisco, right? Yeah. And it hasn't that this hasn't reached Elizabeth and Matthew yet. Right. It gets to her before it gets to Matthew, and it gets to her when she gets home that night after their day, because Matthew is acting strange. He's got to go to a dentist conven- convention at uh, night. Right. Like a dentist meeting. Yeah. Anyway. And, and he and he criticizes her. He criticizes her for being emotional. And this is the guy who's always spontaneous, and now. He he, he's just speaking very monotone, very precise movements. And before we saw him, you know, kind of spread out with his legs kicked up and, and rooting on the warriors and this kind of thing. Well, uh, he's wearing that terrible brown 70s suit. I meant to 
that in my notes. He's got like this chunky looking brown 70s suit. If you ever watched a movie from the 70s, you've probably seen this suit. I think it would, yeah. my dad has this suit in a uh, family portrait we have from uh, the late 70s, probably this this era, in fact. But yeah, so she but she jumps to she jumps to the conclusion that it's not him fairly quickly in, in terms of movie time. I, I actually, see, I actually like that because she's just confused. But then when she tries to embrace him. She tries she to embrace him and then, and then something happens during that embrace that creeps her out and she just kind of walks away. She sent, she gets this, this, this undeniable sense that that's not him. And this will come up. I mean, there, there are numerous characters that have this experience. She, she recognized because th- th- this is a man she lives with. Yep. She, she, she's intimate with him frequently yep. uh, or, or, or has been. And so she, which she is notices. Shocking, which is shocking because they, they wear so many pajamas in the seventies. <laughs> Right. It's, it's imagine it's it's hard to imagine that any procreation got done with all these pajamas. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, well, but she recognizes immediately that something's wrong. She turns to Matthew uh, because because that because they are very good friends. We don't know the history of their friendship. I mean, maybe they've known each other for years. Yeah, but That's what um, I got the sense because she goes yeah. over and she she makes her confession that this isn't this isn't my husband. This isn't my boyfriend. Um, and she and she does lay out a pretty decent case that nobody would believe. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But, but like she sees this completely different person who to her, who we presume she's been with for a while long enough to know whether or not he was bipolar or had some other you know kind of personality affecting disorder and this guy who she's with now seems very new and they have a nice little scene where she's clearly panicking but this is one of the things that I liked about that kind of revealed the friendship between Matthew and Elizabeth because as she's kind of you know ramping herself up he says you start cutting that celery because he's making stir fry and he yeah. kind of puts her she's still talking about what her problem is but he gets her doing other things and it kind of bleeds some of her nervous energy out of the conversation which I just thought that's a good friend that's a, that's a good friendship we're seeing here because he kind of knows well no and I like you know okay this is a small thing yeah. but they're making stir fry they live in San Francisco yeah. they're, they, they, they like to cook they don't just make burgers or order out uh, you know because he asked her to get the ginger out of the yeah uh, out of one of the drawers so, so so there's kind of there's kind of this sense I think the film does a very good job of portraying San Francisco and just the you know the way life is lived in San Francisco. Uh, people living in these older homes, which are more like, a, you know, large apartments. I, I, I like all of that. I, I agree with you that that he's he, he's looking to help her. They have a meal together. They're sitting out on the balcony. They're drinking wine and they're talking about things. I think this is a, a great character interaction. Yeah, I do. She, she is clearly turning to him for help. She's, she's, she's worried. She's near. He wants to help her. But at the same time, and I really like this, Matthew he jumps to a conclusion. Yeah. He thinks that the, the reason Elizabeth is having this experience is not because Jeffrey actually has changed, but she really wants out of the relationship and doesn't know it. Yeah. And Matthew tries to build on that because... Let me let me stop you for a second because I think that that's true, but I also see in this scene he's a good friend who's attracted to Elizabeth, Yeah. but he's also trying to put good friend at the forefront and he's, he's not being wheedling, he's not trying to drive a wedge between them. He would clearly like to be in a relationship with her but I get the sense that this is kind of the great thing about the script and the acting is he's he's also a guy trying to do the right thing for Elizabeth and yeah. have her make her own decisions and not be the not not be in her ear about oh, I can get him to break up she's she's ready to be out I can I can I can move in on her he doesn't do that he's a very good fr- I, I just think he's a very good friend in this well, scene I, I see 
I would push back against that just a little bit. He does do the right thing yeah. because because he does say, talk to my friend, Dr. Kibner. He's a psychiatrist yeah. and he might eliminate some some possibilities. So Matthew's hoping, I think he's hoping that, oh. that, there's, that there's something behind this. But if you think of the things that he says, like you know, some of the possibilities, you know, he's having an affair, he's gay, he's become a Republican. Yeah. Like he lists, he lists these things that he knows would be, uh, we assume that he knows Elizabeth would be bothered by. Now, but, 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 I, but I think that he's doing that to kind of steer her away from the crazy talk that she's... Okay. I, th- I think he's trying to like rein her back in a bit because he thinks that there are more pedestrian things other than you're living with a doppelganger, right? You're right, yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah, yeah. And, uh, and that's what I got out of that. I mean, they're still very flirtatious, but I think he's, I think he's definitely walking that line of like... Because he could have been in her ear a lot. He could have been really pushing the affairs. And, and, and instead, he, he makes it clear that he's re- it's a nod and a wink, like, do you want some more wine? Yeah. You know, uh, and she does. Uh, she does want some yeah, more. Yeah. And I noticed too, and I, I think I noticed this anyway. The next day, uh, she must have gotten cold because she's wearing his cardigan mm-hmm. in later see in in later scenes. The brown the brown cardigan. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. I don't know if that's if we're supposed to if that implies anything other than she was cold, but. I mean, that's kind of a friendly, that's more than a normal friend gesture. And so, so the film does go out of its way in subtle ways to try to, to, it doesn't, it doesn't hit us over the head with these characters. I mean, look at the conversation we just had about Matthew and Elizabeth and the nature of their relationship. The the film doesn't spell any of that out. No, no, no. It, It just, it just gives us a snapshot of it so that we can see that these are normal people with normal feelings and relationships and questions and they like things about each other that are bizarre. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, uh, but what happens next? I'm, I'm I'm spacing here a little bit. I believe next, yeah, they they go to the book signing. The book signing where we meet where we meet the Goldblum. Yes, uh, where we meet uh, Jeff Goldblum, uh, Jack Belichick. Jack Belichick, and, who is a who is a writer, um, uh, <laughs> at least aspiring. Right. Um, and Jack is a uh, Jack Belichick is a very good role for Jeff Goldblum. He's a very passionate artist. The book is off. Kibner's book is off. His ideas are garbage. Kibner's ideas are pure garbage. How can you say that about a man like Kibner? I'm not saying it about a man like Kibner. I'm saying it about Kibner. He dashes one of these things off every six months. It takes me six months to write one line sometimes. Why? Because I pick each word individually, that's why. What's so hard about that? I wasn't even talking to you, was I? Oh, and, uh, this is classic Goldblum. These scenes. <laughs> yeah, it really is. And he's just, he's just chewing. Jeff Goldblum is good at chewing through scenery and, uh, and very good at delivering lines. That, uh, this is something they're all really good at, but they don't feel like they're delivering lines. You know, I mean, it's very, yeah. very modern dialogue style. And he is really, really dominating the scenery. Every scene he's in at this party, Donald Sutherland very, very wisely plays under Goldblum. He doesn't try yeah. to, he doesn't try to match Goldblum for weirdness you know uh, you, you're not going to do that so so he's trying to talk to the police is it who's he trying to talk to uh, well, yeah, uh well, yeah, you know, because before Kimmer. before elizabeth and and uh benel uh, benel got to the party they witnessed a car accident oh well, yeah yeah oh, yeah we're getting ahead of ourselves actually i i, I also we've forgotten about the uh, i believe the uh the dry cleaner oh yeah the dry cleaner that's uh, so yeah Ma- matthew benel goes to a dry cleaner to get his shirt done coffee stain he's got to get it out lady says it's not a coffee stain 
she's very professional, matter of fact, and she goes to the back and this old Chinese guy comes out and says, that's not my wife. Now Matthew's starting to take a little more note of the weirdness because in the span of not even 24 hours, he's had two people come up to him and say, it's not my, it's not my ex. Yeah. One of them who he knows and trusts. Yeah. And now uh, the guy that runs the dry cleaner that he goes. Now there's no shortage of crazy people in a big city. But how likely is it that a crazy person is going to come and say the exact thing that someone you just tr- you trust just said, right? Right, right. So that, 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 that causes him to go, whoa, that's kind of weird. And then the the, the woman, the, his wife, air quotes, kind of oozes back into the frame with that very suspicious look that we've seen in the yeah. film a lot. The guy's like, that's not my wife, and slams yeah. the, the dry cleaning thing down because nobody's listening to him either. Yeah, yeah. And then, uh, then I think we get the scene with some with another crazy person in the street. They're here. They're, they're here. They're they're coming to get us. They're they're already here. Help! Help! They're coming! They're coming! Listen to me! Listen! Help! Oh, you're next, please, please. You're next. They're in danger. Please listen to me. Something terrible. Please. You're next. Here they are. They're already here. Help! Does he do the exact lines from the from the? Maybe you should explain what's going on in this scene because this is this is another early edition of fan service. And yeah, this, to tell us about it. Matthew and Elizabeth are driving down the street, of course. The and uh, Matthew's telling her a joke, which actually which actually is kind of a neat moment because they're having this conversation. It's not necessarily interesting, which is what you would do though. Like people, yeah, people yeah. talk about yeah, people talk about things that are not necessarily interesting. You know. Well, um, yeah, because he's like, uh, have I told you the joke about the guy, the uh, yeah. guy in the pub, and he starts the joke and she's like oh no you have told me that yeah yeah and I, have some, I have some good news for you and i have some bad news for you yeah and then and he never gets to finish it because she's like oh yeah yeah, yeah you've already done that and then there's i do uh, know the joke uh, we can we can do it at oh, the, end of the podcast <laughs> i do know the joke i looked i looked it up a man runs out and he's saying you know they're already here you've got to please listen to me please listen to me and he's pounding on the on the windshield of the car and the man who is yelling at them is uh who's unnamed in the film is Kevin McCarthy, who played the original Bunnell from the original Invasion of the Body Snatcher. Now, uh, he, he then gives up on them. He runs off. I think he runs, runs off because people are coming after him. People are coming after him. He runs around the corner. A group of people run after him. And then clearly he's he's hit by something, yep. which is a great moment because Donald Sutherland goes, <gasps> like he, he he gasps. Yeah. Uh, and, and it seems very, very real. Something very interesting about the film is that what makes this... It's not really a sequel. It's a remake. Yeah. But it's almost a soft sequel. And it's very interesting because we talked about the thing, how you talked about how the uh, the uh, the Norwegians, yeah. that they have the video of them finding the ship and it looks a lot like scenes from the original movie. Yeah. In fact, I think you said that it I think it is. I think, I think it is actually scenes from the original yeah. movie. So that almost makes it a soft sequel in a way. Yeah, yeah. Um, this film, it's the same thing. Um, the idea or an idea that one could have is that this in fact is is the character from the original film okay. and, he, and he's been on the run all this time gotcha gotcha um that, that that was not intended yeah yeah but but you could almost you could almost uh, assume that i had read in the past that kevin mccarthy almost broke his hand hitting the windshield really he, yeah he really he really put himself into he it. he's amazingly effective in the scene actually i think he's really yeah. good in it um especially for a guy who you know 
cut his teeth acting in that in that in that era in that 50s and 40s and 50s era you know um yeah because his 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 panic they're here is i think actually a lot better than the one in 56 different movies right but yeah but this also is the guy who the naked crazy person said he was speaking to this actor what's the actor's name again kevin mccarthy kevin mccarthy this is the actor who the crazy person said the original was better to yeah yeah anyway um you probably heard that story yeah but when they when they when when uh Sutherland and Elizabeth, I'm sorry, when Benella and Elizabeth go around the corner, it's not like a normal accident scene. Yeah. There's no panic. There's nobody screaming. Nobody is like, oh my God, you know, that man yeah. got, you know, that man street pizza. Nobody is acting emotional about it, right? Yeah. And, and he says, the police are here. They'll help. Which, which you know, in, in the era of no cell phones, yeah. that's how you would react. Should I do something? Because, uh, but, oh, the police are here. They've got this kind of thing. Because, you know, Matthew's a little creeped out about it. I think he would rather not yeah. stop. But it's then an I eerie, believe... it's an eerie scene. Yeah. Nobody's yeah. moving with any urgency. Nobody's trying to really help the guy. Not not even the cops. Nobody's trying to the yeah. cop isn't behaving like a first responder. The people on the side aren't behaving like eyewitnesses to such a uh, uh, an occurrence, right? They're just kind of standing there like plants, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, it does unnerve both of them so much that, that Ben Al wants to make a report to the police. And that's when he's he's trying, yeah. he's at the book fair, he's at the, I mean, the book signing of his friend and uh, Jeff Goldblum's in his ear and, and, and Sutherland's, come on, I'm trying, I'm talking to the police. Don't talk to the police. Why are you talking to the police? Jeff Goldblum's <laughs> chewing scenery. And he finds out that there doesn't seem to have been any report about this guy. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So this is, this is more of that heightened paranoia that's starting to creep into Matthew Bennell's character. A lot of the Goldblum's character, Belichick, is he talks like a paranoid guy but I almost think that that's an affectation it's a performance it's performative yeah. he doesn't really become paranoid until later in the film yeah oh he, he's just kind of a um, a provocateur uh, yeah yeah well because because he's an artist yeah you know he, he, he the suffering artist the misunderstood artist yeah, yeah. why Matthew decided to, to, to bring him along because they are <laughs> friends they are friends but I would not bring a guy like that to see an author he hated <laughs> <laughs> you know, because this is a guy who can't, he's, he's one of those guys who's probably quite talented. I get the sense that he's published, you know, yeah. but he, he is, like you said, underappreciated and, and it really bothers him that people yeah. like this psychologist friend, popular and a popular author that, that Matthew's also friends with. Matthew runs right. in, Matthew's an interesting guy, uh, but San Francisco is also kind of a happening place. So at this party that we get more of that, my spouse is not my spouse. Yeah. There's a, 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 a woman who claims that Ted is uh, her husband Ted is not really Ted, mm-hmm. and Dr. Kibner, played by Leonard Nimoy, is is comforting her and trying to right. I tell you, I I think it's a hard scene to watch because we, the viewer, know that the lady is right, and she's almost being manipulated to go home with this creature who's pretty much going to put an end to her life. Absolutely, absolutely. What's 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 Leonard Nimoy's character's name? Kibner. He uh. Now, he does not play well. I mean, he's acted fine, but his behavior does not play well, I don't think, to modernize. He's a very touchy-feely guy. But I get the sense that I've seen a lot, I mean, you and I have watched a lot of films, but he does certainly seem to fit a certain archetype of the psychiatrist, psychologist of this era. Of that very, time. Very, very emotional, very, very willing to meet the patient where they're at, very yeah. much trying to console and help the patient through a troubling spot. I don't get the sense that he's a creeper guy, personally. Right. I could certainly see how people would, would modernize, would certainly say, that guy is asking for complaints, <laughs> you know? 
Yeah, um, yeah. Because he puts his arm around her and he's like telling everybody to calm down and he's trying to convince her, like you said, to go back to her husband. It is, like you said, it's hard to watch because he doesn't know what's really going on. And then yeah. as he's trying to convince her of this, he ends up having to tell Elizabeth to be quiet because she's like, oh, no, that, that guy is not, not human. She's right. That guy has been hanging out with my husband, you know? And then yeah. Kipner's trying to deal with like multiple psychoses, he thinks, at once. I, now... Here's a question for you. Is Nimoy good in this movie? Is his performance good? Is his performance good? I've never had a problem with his performance. I would not single him out. Yeah. Like I would like I would the others. Yeah. I think every, I think everybody else is uh, is perfect. The only thing about Nimoy's performance, and I know that they actually I know now I read this, but I've but I've always sensed that they were consciously trying to not make him be Spock. Yeah. He he. Well, he, he was laughed. consciously trying to not be Spock too. I mean, I read the, I think I read the same kinds of things you yeah. did today. Kaufman seemed to also want to help Nimoy over this typecasting hump yeah. that he was in. Now, for people who don't know this, Leonard Nimoy played Doctor Spock from the show uh, Star Trek and he did that perfectly well I'm sure everybody knows that but you know maybe there's like some you know 20 something or some friend of my daughter's who's listening to this show is like who's fucking Leonard Nimoy and it might it might be good to bring this up I felt sometimes when I was watching Nimoy's performance that this is also a guy trying very hard to get out of the prison of the typecasting that he was in so he is really selling up this kind of different side of his personality in this he laughs a lot he's very affectionate he's always you you know, he's putting his arm around people all the time, which probably goes with Kaufman's idea of like, humans have emotions, let's see those. And then when you become an uh, one of these clones, that goes away. So, so after you get cloned, you lose all of your human emotion. It sounds like you take most of your memories with you. Like they, the clone will have a lot of your memories, but it, the clone loses all of the emotion. They they have, all, they have all your memories. Well, in fact, I mean, later in the film, we get the impression, now they could be lying, Yeah. but we almost get the impression that the new creatures almost believe they are still the person. Well, yeah, they, well, yeah like you said, they think the the one that we the one representative that we get to hear the most from later on thinks it's the good guy. Yeah, um, it's not it's not what you think. Yeah, you know? he he tries to sell it. I'm not sure if that's a con or if he really believes it. I, I'm not sure it is either. I'm not sure it is either. They have all the memories. They yeah. have. And here's the reason why I don't think that it's a con. There's no reason to offer that explanation to them at this point. They've won. Yeah, yeah. There's no reason. That's, that's a good point. Yeah. You know, um, yeah. That's a little ahead of us. So then, they're, now this is now this is where they've recruited not the last of the heroes of this piece, but now we've got. Kip, uh, Kipner? Yeah. Uh, who's Dr. Leonard David Nimoy's Kipner. Yeah. Yeah. And he's going he's gonna to talk to Elizabeth the next day. Yeah, well, so um, he and Matthew, because then we get the sense that that uh, Kibner and Matthew are, are very good friends. Yeah. Uh, that they've known each other for a long time. And Kibner expresses to Matthew that he's been running into this all week. Yeah. That pe- pe- people who think that somebody that they know is, and he thinks that it's going to go away in a couple, no, he says it usually goes away in a couple days. Yeah. But of course, we know the reason it goes away is because the person making the complaint that's also replaced. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. This kind of, I think, comforts Matthew a little bit because, okay, other people are seeing this. People who are better equipped than, than 
AI to understand the human psyche are also seeing it. They are mystified by it, but they're on top of it. You know, I mean, Kibner is a, is, a, is well, Matthew thinks he's a great psychiatrist yeah. and he knows what's going on and he's he's working. Sadly for poor Kibner, he doesn't know quite enough to make the right decision. It's, it's unclear to me whether or not if he had known anything different would happen. But, but then there's that interesting conversation uh, where uh, I think Matthew says, you said it sounds like some kind of contagion. Is this something that the health department should get involved in? And so they kind of start talking about a very practical real world solution to the thing. So they've got a plan of action. And then Kibner reminds him to take Elizabeth home to her house. Yeah. yeah. And uh, and they have a little chuckle about that. He knows Matt. Her home to her boyfriend, Matthew. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. But I mean, Kibner even seems to start immediately moving down the same solutions to the problem of Elizabeth's attitude towards her boyfriend that Matt, that, that uh, Matthew did. Mm-hmm. He thinks that she probably wants out of the relationship as well. Yeah. And he gave, did he give her a sedative that night? I, I can't remember. Uh, I don't think then yeah. uh, he just has to take her home and, and then he does. Uh, and of course, Jeffrey has not changed one bit. No, no, no. But then he and, he and uh, Jack. If you, Belichick- haven't, sorry, sorry, if you haven't, Already, Jeffrey is Elizabeth's boyfriend. Just yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm just talking to the audience here, so just so they might know. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I don't think we had mentioned that, but uh, yeah. But I just remember she's always saying Jeffrey. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So then Matthew goes to hang out with the Belichicks because uh, Jack Belichick, who's uh, Jeff Goldblum's character, uh, is married to, to uh, uh, Veronica Cartwright. Uh, Veronica. I don't remember what her character's name is. Nancy. Nancy Belichick. Nancy Belichick. And Nancy runs a health spa, and this is also very much kind of like the, the, the kind of San Francisco aesthetic that she's she's very into natural healing. She's into um she reads she's, crazy books. She 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 reads all kinds of kind of new age solutions yep. to every problem and the pairing and, of, of these two is perfect in film. <laughs> I mean they they would feed off of each other's craziness, the Belichick couple. It's a pretty perfect pairing, I, I think. Um for, for viewers who haven't seen this movie, the actress Veronica Cartwright is considered something of a queen of science fiction. Yeah. She was in another film this this same year, 78, which is of course icon, uh, iconic as well, which is Alien. Anyway, she's a she's an icon of science fiction cinema. Absolutely. Uh just in this just for these two films, basically. Exactly. Done other things, but if if these were the only two things she had done, oh, we would know who she was. Yeah, 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 yeah. I guess is what um, I'm saying. We meet them at the health spa. Jack is still very stressed out because he, he he still got the hurt feelings from having to see somebody else get the limelight that that he feels like that he justly deserves. Oh, you know, he has a yeah. he has a copy of Kibner's book, and she's like, "What do you think of the book?" And he looks at it for a long time, and then slams it on the ground. <laughs> yeah. He's like not having any of it. Yeah, yeah, he's been holding it in, and uh, not very well at that. Right. So then we. Um, there's a there's yeah, a weird the mud, guy in the in the in the mud bath. The mud baths. He's reading uh, uh, "Worlds in Collision" by Velikovsky, right. which, which had preposterous ideas in it that Carl Sagan Carl Sagan developed uh, debated the author of this book actually. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, and uh, uh, the author of this book actually came to Erlem and much incensed my astronomy professor. Uh, this was before my time when this happened, but I heard about it. But anyway, oh, okay. yeah. So there's this weird creepy guy reading a book in the mud bath, and oh. the book is all muddy. It's very strange. I can't tell if this guy is infected or not. I think we are to assume that he is. Yeah. But no, I, I know what you mean because you know why would a why wouldn't a, a, a replaced person be reading a book? And especially one so near and dear to 
the alien story, which uh, which the world's in collusion kind of talks about a little bit, I think. And she recommends a crazy book to him, and then she says, "Now nah, you gotta go." And uh, she, uh, her, both 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 the Belichicks own this spa, don't they? Well, you, I mean, yeah, you, she runs it. I mean, um, but but they kind of share the income. You yeah. kind of get the sense that she's the one that's floating him financially. Probably so. Probably so. He's trying, because, but, but but eventually, you know, he's gonna sell that the big book that's gonna break him, and yeah. and uh, you know, then he'll be the big. But, but it's just been frustrating for him. She's very supportive. She's a great character. I really like. I really like this character a lot. Yeah, I, um, and, and she believes in what she does. I mean, she absolutely. I like too that like she uh, she she is she has a dab hand with her customers. Like when they'll start complaining to her, she'll be like, "Shut up." And she's, yeah. she's like moving them through their paces and she's like, I don't want to hear it. One of the guys is like, I need to, I need to have a different music. And she's like, no, you don't. This is great for my plants. And uh, she's giving him a massage and he's like, oh, but I don't really like it. And she's like, but it's good for my plants. So just listen to it. It's going to help you with this process. And I can't remember what all she says, but, but I just like she doesn't take any gruff from any of her, her patients yeah. her, her Patrons and I get the sense that they they several of them have this enjoyable banter with her that's that that that's on the border of confrontational but not really it's just two people you know razzing each other a bit and I I, I sense that there are a lot of clients like that in they go to her spa because mm-hmm. of who the Belichicks are yeah yeah Normal people could not handle the Belichicks right <laughs> that's um, true these people the Belichicks are. You have to be of a special personality, I think, to tolerate hanging out with them. And so they have a specific well, kind of clientele. Well, and they and they are people with specific personalities, but quirks. They're very quirky people, which again is is the film kind of in a very appropriate it doesn't beat you over the head with it. No, no, but, no. But they have these these certain these specific personalities that if they were replaced, those personalities would be gone. Which is the biggest indicator that something's gone wrong when, when yeah they change. And this is where we first see though the uh, they're cleaning up the spa, the Belichicks, and they come upon 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 a person in under a sheet. Yeah, and they're like, oh, I mean, you gotta go, guy, you gotta go, and they undo the sheet, and it's a developing pod person. Yes, it's pretty grotesque. No, they call Matt right away, don't they? Yeah, which is which is which is the smart thing to do yeah, yeah. and he shows up and, and 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 they discover that it's it has no detail it has no fingerprints yeah. it looks a little like jack like mr belichick like jack yeah, exactly and matthew's the the person who kind of starts to figure this out and he's like it doesn't have any noticeable details but it looks he says he says that it's an adult but and this what's lacking in detail and he looks at the fingers and he says no fingerprints it's like an infant and and she said you just said it was an adult and he says i said it, i said it was an adult because it was tall and, and i i actually i like the way donald sutherland plays this scene because he's, he's very professional yep. he's trying he's trying to to unravel the mystery here he senses that this has this might have something to do with all the stuff that's going on and, and i do think this is kind of the moment when his character really kind of in a panicked way kind of jumps in and, yeah. and begins to decide to take action again against whatever the hell's going on. Well, and it's too bad too, because like he's a scientist, but not a research scientist. He's, he's right. He and Elizabeth are both way out of their depth. Yeah, it's too bad. But yeah. but he's asking the right questions, and he starts to notice some similarities between the developing adult and Jeff Goldblum. And he's like, uh, it's got hair. And so it was, how tall are you? He says to Jeff Goldblum, he's about six three. And he's and he kind of looks meaningfully at the size of the of the develop the thing that's developing in their in their spa. Is Elizabeth with them? She's not with them at that point, is she? They, no, she, she's back home. Yeah. 
And it's right right after what you just described, we see him put it all together and yep. he immediately runs to the phone to call her. That's when we see that she's starting to be taken over. Is that right? She, she has kind of this modeling on her on her yeah, face. Like her, like her skin's drying out. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the phone rings. Uh, she She's in bed. The phone rings by the bed. Jeffrey comes over and picks it up, hears that it's Matthew, hangs it up, and then leaves the phone off the hook. And um, and that's when Matthew decides that he's going to call the police yeah. and and go and rescue her. So he does He does that. He does all those things. Um, he does go and rescue her. He calls Kibner, too. He has the Belichick's call Kibner. And he and Kibner comes in and sees that there's no body. Right. The, uh, the thing is left. Yeah. Or, or it failed. It's hard to say because Mrs. Belichick wakes up her husband and that, that stops the process. You To be taken over by these things or to be cloned, they need the, the, the life form needs you to be asleep long enough that it can utilize your resources, your body resources, it can clone your memories and use that energy and materials from your body, I think, to grow the new body. Right, right. She wakes up uh, Jeff Goldblum, uh, Belichick, and that's that halts the process. So the thing yeah. could have imploded or it could have left, but I think that it must have imploded something happened to it no no i you don't think so the window's open the window's open right window's open and there's a garbage truck out there it's just heading away. But I think the implication is is that is that Kibner did it. Oh, okay. Because the Belichicks don't go back there with him, which is a mistake. They should have, you know. Yeah. But Kibner shows up. They stay in the front office. He goes through and he comes back and he says, I do not see a body. And they're like, well, it's right over there. It's, it's on the left. Yeah. I don't see a body. Like, he just keeps repeating like... Well, like I, think it, I think it has to be Kibner because it's established that those things don't live if they don't no. have enough time to assimilate the material from the host. So that's the only thing it could be. So they probably just toss the, the bad seed pod out and uh, we'll try again later. And so when they try again pretty shortly after this, but so at some 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 moment between the last time we saw Kibner and now he's been assimilated. I think certainly at this point. Yeah. A lot of the times that I've watched it and this might, and this actually might lend some credence to your criticism of Leonard Nimoy's performance. Yep. At many times that I've watched it, I even thought that, that uh, Kibner was... Even even though he was laughing, yeah. that Kibner was replaced even in the book signing. But he happened to be an alien that that was mimicking yeah. these human these human qualities because he because obviously whoever, once he was replaced, his knowledge of human psychiatry would be preserved. But actually, I I I think that you're right because not because he doesn't he doesn't laugh anymore. Yeah. For the rest of the film, he he'll speak impassioned, but he won't he won't laugh and he won't be affectionate. And I think that the fact that that, that that's something that didn't dawn on me on previous viewings says something about Nimoy's performance yeah because actually what you're just what you described you know uh, as that, that you know putting his arm around the little woman and laughing and all this kind of that Nimoy does that so poorly <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that it actually, for many years, I actually thought that it was a pod person trying to imitate human emotions. Okay, but for me, I, I, I want I, that doesn't quite feel right to me because Jeffrey doesn't even bother trying. I mean, like maybe maybe you're right. Maybe it is person specific. Maybe Leonard Nimoy's character can fake it because he has a, a vast knowledge of human psychi- psychology by assimilating the real Kibner. But Jeffrey doesn't even bother. Nobody else bothers. So I think that I think that it's somewhere 
somewhere between take her home to her boyfriend and I am not seeing yeah. a body. That's that's what I think. But like, but it is also hard to say. But he's clearly in cahoots with them uh, when they all get together later on. When they all very clearly. But I would say he's in cahoots here because because the windows open, the trash truck is just going away. So the body was just disposed of, like Absolutely. just disposed of. So he at least would have noticed something. Yes, you know he would have walked in on something. He would have. I can't remember if they go back to his office that day that night they do they go, they go back to his office that day don't they or the next day no actually um i don't know if they ever go to the because okay because the next moment uh, matthew calls him to go to jeffrey and elizabeth's house because uh because matthew breaks in this scene here where matthew goes in and saves uh, elizabeth is actually pretty well done the kind of cloak and dagger stuff yeah. that he has to do i mean he has to sneak through the house with this pod person the pod person still likes the headphones i noticed it's watching like uh, the other i would say i i thought about that this time he knew that not to trust matthew and so i actually think that he's sitting in the front room and he has the headphones off with the windows open so that anybody who knows like if Matthew came by, he knows Jeffrey's habits. Yeah. He just sees him sitting with the headphones. Nothing nothing to see here. Nothing's going on. Because yeah. there's also evidence that the headphones aren't on because Matthew bumps into something mm-hmm. and we cut and That's we right. cut to Jeffrey and he looks up like he heard something. Good point. Good point. Yeah. But it's still nice how Matthew picks Elizabeth up, somehow stifles most of his horror at what he sees. The growing pod person in her little uh, sunroom or whatever it is in yeah. the in their house and uh, he saves her. Once he creates that separation from the pot person, she almost starts to seem like she's feeling better right away. Mm-hmm. But anyway, I think that's just a neat little scene. Yeah. There's no, yeah. There's no action. There's no fight. He doesn't do anything crazy. Uh, but he just like kind of moves in and out of rooms and do- is dodging Jeffrey. It's just, it's just effective. But then he comes back with the police and uh, and Dr. Kipner. And um, that's right. And, and uh, he he explains what's going on. The police don't believe him. And Jeffrey has arranged some broken pottery to make it look like that one might have assumed the body was there, but was mistaken. Matthew looks crazy. Matthew actually, he he, he, he looks look like all these other characters, right? Yeah. And it's interesting too because he's he's trying to tell them the story. It sounds crazy. Some of these cops are not pod people. I think maybe some of them are. Kibner's definitely one at this point, and he's kind interrupting Matthew but you're right Matthew is just no it's not her real body it's her fake it's 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 her clone body and he's just going on about like no no she's not there I've got her I'm talking about her her double her body double or whatever it is you know yeah the cops like dude you're crazy (laughs) and this is what's really weird the reaction shocks everybody Matthew's making the case that Elizabeth is safe with him I think Kibner's even trying to get him to bring her back but then Jeffrey's like no I trust that Matthew is I trust that she's fine with Matthew he just says that you know I think the reason that is because actually in watching that scene Matthew has painted himself into a corner he had no no right to do he had no right to do what he did no no The the police are totally on Jeffrey's side Jeffrey suddenly is acting like the concerned boyfriend and I think the only reason because and if you think about it, Kibner could say, well, yeah, sorry, Matthew, they're going to have to take you in. Yeah. And there's nothing Matthew could do. But they don't know where Elizabeth is. And, and they need to close the net on these yeah. people. Yeah. And I think, and so I think what ends up happening in the scene is Kibner kind of kind of hints to everybody in the room, including Jeffrey and any of the police that are replaced, that let me handle this. Yes. Because we've got to handle this in a certain way to make sure that we seal the deal cleanly. Because Jeffrey clearly is like, well, okay, then. You know, he, he agrees to it, even though he's he well, really wants Elizabeth replaced. One person is okay, but there is an alliance growing of heroes, right? 
Yeah. And you're right. That, that idea of closing the net makes a lot of sense. Um, Jeffrey almost says something that a concerned boyfriend might say is, like, will she be coming back tonight? And Matthew's like, nah. And, yeah, and he yeah. doesn't react badly. You know, he just kind of is like, kind of, okay, okie doke. You know, yeah, he goes back to right. drinking his, he doesn't say that, but that's, that's his affect. But you're right. Matthew comes off looking like a crazy person. And it's just because they have to wrap these people up in a single swoop. I think you're right about that. Now, I want to say something about this group of heroes. It's a very Stephen King kind of group of heroes. I mean, have you, have you given that any thought? Like, it's a couple of health department workers, it's a writer, and it's a masseuse, um, and a doctor. I mean, before, I mean, he goes down pretty quick, this doctor, but like, this is just really ordinary people trying to, to make it and, through this, yeah. through this scenario. Now, a modern film, they might have tried to do something different, might have tried to supply a more action oriented kind of man or woman of action, right? And it wouldn't have worked as well. Yeah. Because if, imagine if you put Sylvester Stallone in this movie. Yeah. It can't in the way it does once you put right. that guy in there then the movie has to end a different way you know what i mean and we'll get to that in a minute folks but so i just thought it was kind of a daring choice to have these really ordinary heroes i think this is another reason why i thought that this was a tv movie only because of like like the low rent heroes that it had you know like donald right. sutherland is not an action hero you know what i mean yeah but 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 no you're right these are not action heroes um, and you know it actually occurred to me today it looks like a an all-star cast oh yeah, yeah. but it I don't, but i don't i don't think it is no, I mean and not at the time. Not not at the time. No, no. Yeah. The biggest name would have been Donald Sutherland. I, I looked at the in the in the IMDb trivia. Everybody but Donald Sutherland got paid about twenty five thousand dollars for this, including Leonard Nimoy, who was not a no name at this point. He's not a no name, but he was a television actor. It's true. But Donald Sutherland got like three or four hundred thousand dollars for his his part in it, and yeah. so that shows you kind of the the difference in the star power like yeah like you said like today looking back you're like well this has got like everybody this has got like all kinds of iconic actors in it and from there a pretty narrow miss mm -hmm. the doctor says he believes them gives elizabeth a sedative yes maybe has slipped other people sedatives i'm not sure because because several of them fall asleep again except for well, well he tells him he says matt get some sleep matthew like he, yeah, he, he hammers that shit home yes he does and uh and of course he thinks they're crazy he, he's laying on the couch and he's oh, let's go over this one more time you know like uh, well, he, does, he, does tell, he does tell Matt that he believes him at the end of that that vignette he does uh, but then he immediately goes down the stairs gets, gets in a car with car. some other unemotional people and what does he say Jason the sooner the better <laughs> yes uh, but yeah so he's trying to get them to sleep and then one of the more harrowing scenes in the movie I think is when they all almost get potted uh, Matthew goes out to sleep in the in the backyard which is fenced in but there are there are pods out there and Matthew falls asleep and the pods begin producing the the duplicates yep. and this is where this you know wow 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 yeah, yeah. wow the, the, it's the, almost the, like V'ger has returned right yeah and so, um but there's this, this this pretty affecting sound effect by the by either the score or the people who are designing the soundscape. Of which is the, great. Yeah. Which is great, yeah. Um, now, I was thinking that this scene drug on a little too long, but my opinion of that changed when, towards the end of it, when uh, Lady uh, Belichick comes running out and starts... Nancy. Nancy yeah. starts yelling at everybody to wake up. And yeah. uh, But we see the process of how these things kind of pop out of the pods and start to develop and how they seem to... They're, like, loosely connected by these mm -hmm. filaments to their hosts. And, I, you know, in this scene, you think... Belichick, Elizabeth, maybe, maybe Matthew aren't going to make it to the next scene yeah. in the film because it's a pretty close run. I mean, Matthew's out 
really deep in sleep and his pod is almost complete. I mean, his replica right. is almost done. And that's bad when they finish, by the way, everybody. We'll see that later on. But Nancy comes out and sees these three pods almost produced mm-hmm. and she starts screaming, wake up, wake up. And that's pretty, it's a pretty harrowing bit. I, I, I like the way that film, like at first her scream sounds like a whisper. Yeah. You know, so I think we're kind of hearing her from Matthew's perspective yeah, that, because yeah. he, he's asleep and, and oh, someone's calling my name and he doesn't realize that it's someone screaming at him yeah. until he fully becomes awake. And I love the whole, wake the others! Like, he, he immediately clicks into action. He's not your typical man of action, but he is a very capable person. He's he's brave and doesn't hesitate when he when you need to not hesitate. He has some leadership skills. Absolutely. Um, uh, and now, I mean, he makes, he makes a lot of mistakes in the film er- earlier on, but that's because he doesn't have all the information. Well, I mean, nobody would make the right moves at the early point of this, right? Because it's an yeah. unprecedented thing that's happening on Earth. Oh, well, actually, though, you know, there is another moment that I wanted to mention that came just before this scene when it's after Kibner leaves and, um, or no, no, I think it happens now. Um, they, um, they wake everybody up. Um, he grabs a shovel and in a very important moment, he goes over to Elizabeth's clone and can't destroy it. Yeah, yeah. He decides not to destroy it, and he destroys the one that is a clone of him. And we assume that he might destroy the Belichick's clones too. I don't yeah. think we see that. But so it's a pretty grisly bit. Uh, his clone is about to take its first breath or something, and he uh, he brings the shovel down and, and crushes it. Yeah, that, crushes that. It. there's a lot of blood, which I thought for a PG movie. Yeah. That was pretty grisly. It was. It was. Uh, Stephen King uh, mentions that scene in dance uh, in one of his books about writing uh, and fiction. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. And I just thought it was just like shocking. He thought he was really shocked when he saw it. Um, yeah. Uh, well, which by the way, you know, it doesn't look like that, but that does happen in the original film. Oh, does it? Yeah. There, there, there is someone that's going to be copied and they, and they find it like uh, in a tool shed yeah. and they end up, yeah, I, I think they have, they take some garden uh, uh, tools and they, but they, but but you just see this. You know, I don't yeah. think you see. You don't see the shovel hit and cleave yeah. the head in half. But garden tools against plants—that's what you got to use, I guess. Um, so, so I, I, there's a moment I want to talk about, and actually, I cannot remember if it occurs before they go to sleep or if it, it happens in the next conversation when they're trying to figure out what the hell to do next. Yeah. When. Um, um, you kind of get the sense that, okay, Matthew is friends with Jack, uh, um, but we never really get a sense of what he thinks of Nancy, but, but I think we could probably assume that, you know, being a, a kind of paraprofessional scientist, he doesn't take her ideas very seriously. No, no. And there's a great moment, absolutely great moment when she talks about, you know, the books that she reads when, you know, when aliens first came to to earth and they mated with the creatures here to form humans, it's happening again right now. Yeah. And we get a close-up of Donald Sutherland. I think he's, I think he's tying a tie. Yeah. And he just looks at her, and we can see in his face this this horrific realization of this is the first time that I've looked at this woman, and I actually think that she's right. Well, yeah, I mean, she kind yeah. of gets the skeleton of it, you know. So, yeah. She's not she's not she's not spot on, but it gets him turn. It gets the wheels turning in his head too, and he's like, well, yeah, I think she's she's definitely right. onto something, you know. Yeah, and, 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 and he, he's, he's horrified by, by that. He's, yeah, yeah. At that point, why do they? 
leave the building. Oh, they, they leave the building because they're, they're, he kills the thing that's becoming him, and that creates a response in... Killing he, one of those things created an immediate response in the others. They're somehow connected, I think. Apply the break for just a second, because there's, okay. you know, there's a couple of vignette scenes that we probably should bring up, because in just talking about that scene, I want to talk about how um, the close-ups of Donald Sutherland, and there are a lot of close-ups in this movie, yeah. but um, our, Donald Sutherland is very effective, very effective at depicting the sheer terror of realizing what the hell's actually going on because um the when you go back to the dry cleaning yeah when when uh the guy who said it was not his wife and it, it's a very it's a quick cut scene it, it, it's just a little vignette where he says oh she's much better now yeah and well this, and is, the, they, this is that scene of of stark paranoia when he's trying to find allies and yeah he's calling and, the mayor he's calling police he's trying to get calls out of san francisco and well this is very good horror because when, when he says she's much better now we go back to Sutherland and he's backing away yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know I mean that is great because those scenes and then the scene you were about to talk about where he's in the phone booth yeah. and the camera's going around it and there's all people going by yeah. and and you know many of them are probably not even people anymore and Sutherland's trying to get answers and, and at this point he was just getting the runaround but when he tries to make calls after after just after the incident in the garden um the the uh eventually the phone line is cut but he tries to call the police they already know his name yeah you know how do you know my name yeah. i didn't give you my name and then and then jeff goldblum says i'm not matthew i didn't give them my name <laughs> yeah and, and then he tries to call direct to washington dc because he knows somebody in in who's higher up in the what is he the department of Somebody in the federal government. Yeah. And he gets the operator. And the operator like, Yeah. And he's like, well, operator, what are you doing here? I was dialing direct. Yeah. And, and 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 it's suddenly then that we realize, you know, if Matthew had a chance to get through, he already blew it. Yeah. Like maybe if he had called direct first yeah. instead of calling the police, maybe it would have worked. Uh, probably not. I think that they probably had them hemmed in by this point. Yeah. But Matthew, he's always just a little too late to realize just how deep the waters are. I was going to... I think it would take us too far afield to talk about how phones used to work. Yeah. You know, yeah. Um, suffice it to say there were barriers sometimes to calling directly somebody that we don't, we don't have, we don't have switchboards to deal with now. And, right. and in the seventies, my dad used to work for GTE. There were still operators moving cables, you know, yeah. Yeah. even, even into the seventies. So they're fucked. Yeah. Um, yeah. Jeff Goldblum says, hang up the phone so they can start running. That's what he, well, well, he also, do you have a gun? Yeah. And Matthew says, no. Like, yeah. he has this, this pathetic, like, no. like, like, there's just kind of this sense they are woefully underprepared for dealing with this. Well, it's and, interesting because I think that they might have gotten a little farther if they'd had a gun because I, I'm going to throw this out here. I think Jeff Goldblum's character was in Vietnam. Okay. When we see him trying to talk to Kibner, he's wearing an old OD shirt. Yes, you know? that's right. Yeah, and, yeah. And he does a very brave thing that not a lot of writers would do later on when right. they're on the run. Oh, this is also a great scene when they flee the, the I think it might be Matthew's apartment or it's uh, or it's the Belichick's apartment when they flee that uh, the music of them being chased it's almost like the effects are like of a marching parade yeah. after them you know it's it's very it's that paranoia of everybody's after you everybody's out to get you they barely escape uh, is they get away for a little bit only to be rediscovered later on and during this chase uh, they're almost cornered they will they are cornered yeah and, down by the pier down by the pier and and Jeff Goldblum's uh, 
character of Belichick says, I'll catch up with you guys later, tells his wife he loves her, and then he runs and starts saying, chase me, chase me, chase me. His wife does a very dumb thing and that she follows him, which is like, what a waste of what a waste of a great gesture. But it, it actually works out for her later on. She gets separated from her husband and yeah. of he gets caught because everybody in this part of San Francisco, um, this part of San Francisco is chasing them, it seems like. And, and you know, and something else that I, haven't, that, that I haven't brought up yet that I wanted to bring up that actually is something that's really impressive about this movie. There are no sets. Everything is a location shot. Yeah. The, the, the apartments are location shots. E- everything is shot on location. They're, 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 I mean, I didn't see anything that was a set. You could not shoot 10 minutes of film in San Francisco for $3 million today, I don't think. You know? <laughs> right, but, right. But right. yeah, you're right. Uh, this is all... All, I mean, it, it is San Francisco. You're living and breathing the city with uh, these characters, which adds a lot of depth and reality to the piece. Our characters, they go back to the city building, don't they? Elizabeth and Matthew? Elizabeth and Matthew go back to the city building uh, in order to, um, well, I mean, that's kind they of- They're trying to make the calls from there, aren't they? That ship has sailed, Matt. <laughs> Well, and, and you know, and that's where it's a it's a futile kind of game of hide and seek. Yeah, because really, really, they weren't able to get away. No. The only reason the only reason they did get uh, get away is because Jack uh, made the sacrifice that he made. But then they go to their off. It was a bad move, but then it goes to show that these aren't like these aren't operators. These aren't people who deal with danger every day of their life. Right. But there again, where else would you go? Like, who are you going to actually be able to trust? Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, as I was thinking of the, there's, as they're running around, uh, I'm also thinking, that I was thinking that too, like, well, wh- it can't just be San Francisco. Yeah. You know, that's what I was thinking the whole time. It can't just be in San Francisco where this is happening. I mean, maybe this is ground zero for this. I don't know. So they get caught pretty quickly after yeah. Jack Sefres and Leonard Nimoy's Kibner comes in, Jack taking over comes in. Now there's one thing that, that is kind of neat. When they're playing hide and seek in the office Matthew takes some darts off the board and that will come off that will come up a little later on also they know that uh, Matthew and Elizabeth know they need to stay up they steal one of their colleagues speed right and he's like how many are we supposed to take and she's like one he's like well let's take five and that saves them later on yeah because uh, they're getting they get sedated by Leonard Nimoy when they all come in and this is where when they get caught again this is where Leonard Nimoy's character now a clone now a doppelganger lays it out for them Uh, yeah well I mean that's where you know we travel through the universe following the solar winds sidebar is it just me or does jason's leonard nimoy drift into george takei can't decide so into the sidebar and uh, he, he, well, but of course, Jeff Goldblum is there as yeah. well. And Jeffrey. Like, it's almost every, uh, everyone that's been following them, now including Jack, come in. And this is when Jack says, it's not what you think, Matthew. It's like, it's like going to sleep. And I mean, I, I can't remember exactly what he says, but he's almost trying to, to convince him to just, just let it happen. It's better. It, it's better, yeah. And, you, get um, your, you get your, you get your old, you get all your memories, but you don't have any of the pain. Yeah, he, he sedates them. And, and that's kind of a horrible moment because they're basically, basically being forced to in effect die yeah and he even said you're killing us you're killing us david you're 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 killing me he says because remember this was his friend yeah this is his friend you know you're my friend and you're taking my life away Mm -hmm. and Um, elizabeth says to uh kibner this is a neat little moment where she's like you know somebody's going to stop you you will be stopped and he was like in a few minutes you won't want them to stop me that's um well and 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 i think that i mean there are so many moments from from the minute they're in the backyard all the way 
play to the end of the film. The movie has so many moments that set that kind of sets up the they got away and now they're going to to put things in motion to put an end to all of this. Yeah. The film really plays with with the viewer. With that expectation, yeah. And, and we want it to happen. I mean, we we liked this little foursome in the midst of his of his exposition. See, um, he uses the dart to. He doesn't kill. use the dart first. He does. He knocks Kibner over and shoves him into a freezer, and then jams the dart into clone Jack. Jeff Go- Jack, yeah, Jack, uh, who is Jeff Goldblum, and kills, and everybody, kills that clone. And everybody and everybody else has left the room. Yeah, it was quiet enough that they didn't hear. Um, and uh, maybe that kind of violates my hypothesis that they're connected. So when they die, they notice it because it's. I mean, it kills the Jeff Goldblum clone. Right. And then they sneak out. And uh, they run into, uh, and they sneak past the bad guys. Jeff, uh, Little Nimoy's in a freezer. And again, they're on the run and they're about to make everything right. They run into uh, Nancy. Nancy, yeah. And they're like, well, how do we know it's you? And she's like, I've been, it's easy to fool them. Just be emotionless. And that goes okay for like a minute. For like, because actually that, that moment, I, I, I remember the first time that I that I saw that scene. She said, "You know, I've been wandering around them for hours. If you don't show emotion, they don't know any better." And I remember thinking, "Well, that's a good plan. Like that's almost foolproof." Yeah. Um. And and then um. And then she says, "We got to find Jack." Yeah, yeah. And and the look on Donald Sutherland's face is uh, priceless because he knows where Jack is. <laughs> And, uh, and he's not going to tell her. <laughs> he's not going to tell her because he because he knows she won't be able to be emotionless. Yeah. In that, in that situation, and and he's like, we're gonna we're gonna set this right. That's <laughs> what yeah. he says to her, or something he's, like that. He, he doesn't said, lie he, to her, but he says he says very. We're going to beat them. Yeah. Okay. And she's like, okay. And you know that 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 is a great little moment. Uh, and again, I want to get I want to talk more about effective horror. Yeah. Because because that moment when the first time I saw it, I remember when he says. We're going to beat them. I I remember thinking, yes, we are. You yeah. Know, and now we we have a method in terms of how to stay safe. And now we just got to get our bearings and figure out what the next step is. Yeah. And you're right. It, it it's it's not it's not even thirty seconds of screen time, and that that plan's over. They so they go out to the street, and things are looking pretty good. And a new Earth creature has been cloned too, and they didn't do a very good job of it. And this is actually a pretty effective bit of effects when the dog with a human face comes running out, making a really bizarre and unpleasant noise and Elizabeth fails in her acting emotionless immediately. Yes, she does. (laughs) She screams and that attracts notice. Now, Nancy uh, She holds it together. She's just like sorry guys, you're on your own. I guess I'm back on my own because she just walks away. Yeah, and and Matthew, I mean Matthew had the sense to do that too but he wasn't going to abandon Elizabeth. No, no. And and of course the reason this happens, I mean it's their fault because the um, there was a pod by... uh, the, the, there was a, a, a homeless banjo player outside of City Hall who they knew. Yeah. And they saw him sleeping next to his dog and there's a pod there and he actually kicks the pod. Yeah. And and I think that he damages the pod so that the pod ends up replicating both of them together. Ah. So, so Matthew's responsible for the fact that that happened. Okay. And, I'm assu- and I'm assuming that the reason that the dog human, that the reason that it barks at them is because since it's a dog that's yeah. been replaced, it has a sense of smell and can actually detect what's going on. Yeah. Um, and but then they clear out, so Nancy's able to kind of bluff it and keep going on. Yeah. But but then our heroes are chased again. And they they hear boats, and we get uh, a really strange musical bit. And yeah. You can understand this. I was looking for the uh, photon torpedo tube that was going to send 
Leonard Nimoy to a new world, uh, but it didn't happen. Maybe some of you will get my reference here, but they were playing the bagpipe version of Amazing Grace. Yeah, so, which which is another great moment of manipulation. It's kind of a weird choice because, like, well, why is somebody on these docks playing bagpipes? Now, I assume that was the score, and he was hearing the horns of the ships. I yeah, I wondered that, but um, but before we get that, Elizabeth has twisted her ankle. Yes, yeah, so when they're getting down the the because they're climbing down a, a ladder and yeah. she twists her ankle and I was really mad at her shoe choice in that moment. Like, sensible shoes, yeah. Elizabeth. But this is kind of a nice moment because for me as a viewer anyway, a lot of times you see women, they'll be hauling ass through scenery and then they'll you'll get a picture of their shoe wear later on and it's like stilettos and like, you weren't running in those, lady. <laughs> you know? Right, right. So it's nice. She'd, she'd gotten through a lot of hairy spots with these. They weren't stilettos, but they were heels and this was just one of those moments where uh, even ground and it, so it was fine. I, I wasn't bothered by that, but I was I was happy to see that there were consequences to her shoe choice. Well, I, well, I mean, there were massive consequences. Yeah, yeah. actually, the, I mean, the minute that happened, they were toast because you can't run anymore. Yeah. And, and then there's the moment where, um, yeah, they hear the boats, the bagpipes playing "Amazing Grace," and and Matthew's like, "We can get away," which it's is optimistic of him. <laughs> yeah, and and, uh, and it's actually a kind of a delightfully manipulative scene because we get this long shot of Donald Sutherland running along the dock and the and the music swells even more like yeah. lo, lo, like it's almost a very hopeful kind of moment and then when he gets to the ship he sees all these pods like just piles of pods being yeah. brought onto the ship demonstrating that there is an active uh distribution uh, distribution not just in the country but going overseas and then but see i don't know if you noticed the bagpipes suddenly stop and it's the sound of a radio dial being turned yeah so i so i don't know if that if that's something that the people on the ship were listening to i I, I don't actually know. Yeah. Amazing Grace is a very specific choice that, that had some meaning to the director. And this version of Amazing Grace is, is one of the better ones, right? I mean, it's very yeah. it's very inspiring little piece of interpretation of the song. And what I'm getting out of that now as I think about it is like, this is a godless universe and there's just, they either figure this out now or it's it. That's it. That's how I see that scene as well, because yeah. there's kind of this hope and it's dashed pretty quickly. Yeah. And uh, he then returns to Elizabeth who has fallen asleep. Yeah. And she's trying to wake her up and she 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 crumbles in his hands yeah like yeah so there's this, there's a scene where he, he's embracing her and i think he tells her that he loves her or something like that and yeah. there's a little tug at either corner of her mouth and then her face just implodes and it's another effective effect i mean it's, it's yeah. a really good scene and i was the, like oh what's oh, my reaction is his which is oh that's that's the end of this relationship oh donald sutherland's reaction it's a moan it's almost it's almost a child's cry and, and he he is really really i mean to, to watch the woman that he loves just basically crumble into paper yeah yeah is, is i mean this movie really takes these characters and puts them in really i i would say terrifying situations and situations that would be that, that you would dread having to experience it, well yeah no absolutely and there's he gets up to leave and then the her pod replica pops up you know right and this is one of the this is when i was referring to the different scenes that they shoot for they used to shoot for broadcast television in this version in the version i watched she gets up and she's naked yeah right yeah but they also shot a version of her with clothing for the broadcast version no, I've, no, I've never seen that well i i was just reading about it today and there's like a, they shot two scenes and one was for broadcast television and i thought well that's kind of a that's something that you just don't concern yourself with now as a director i don't think you know yeah, yeah. stuff goes to uh they would either cut that scene out 
if they put it on like broadcast TV, which isn't really a thing anymore, or just streams at very on various platforms and mm-hmm. the rating system holds. But I, I thought that was kind of I don't know, a fascinating thing. She tries to, to keep him there to convince him to just go ahead and let it happen, right? Yeah. One of the things that bothered me for years watching the movie was where did that pod come from? Was it just sitting there? And why did she, because he wasn't gone that long. No. Why did she change so quickly? Are we to assume that the body there is the one that he failed to destroy? And that actually they, I mean, but then how would it get there? I don't know. But that that turnaround happens very quickly. Well, yeah, I, I think that something that the, that the invaders have done is they put pods everywhere. They make they manufacture these things, as you saw on the ship, in large quantities. There's no reason to not put these pods out all over the place on the off chance that they'll they'll net a new convert, right? Right. And so, and this sends, but anyway, the death of Elizabeth, his version of Elizabeth, is a lot for him. And so he decides to go try and burn down their distribution center to destroy their right. pods. And right. this is a pretty good action scene, right? For Donald Sutherland, anyway. And he's very effective in it. And he goes and like burns down a bunch of pods uh burns down their whole place right yeah which in which of course in the big picture of the project to take over the over the world he really doesn't do a lot of damage in the big picture And, and he and so this this hips them to where he's at and he's on another foot chase and he gets cornered under a, the dock, I think. Yeah. Under something. People are looking for him. They open up a trap door and the flashlight comes in. Did they find him? We don't know until the last scene if they found oh, him. Yeah, because they say it doesn't matter. He's got to fall asleep sometime, which would, would give credence to what you just said, that they just have pods everywhere. Yeah. You know, eventually, eventually he's going to fall asleep. And when he does, there'll be there'll be something nearby to get him. So the next time we see him after the foot chase, he's walking around watching a bunch of kids get led into a pod room. That's a pretty frightening scene to see. Yeah, it's because, destroyed. because you hear the kids say, we just got here. Why do we have to take a nap right away? Yeah. yeah, yeah. The, the, their, their time on Earth is almost done. You yeah, know? yeah. And he goes and goes to work and then moves among the infected people, controlling mm-hmm. his emotions and is walking through the park and he comes across Nancy, right? Actually, it's not the, the park. I'll tell you exactly where that location is. That is right outside the San Francisco City Building. Okay. I know because I've actually posed for a photograph on that spot. <laughs> um, in honor of this movie? Did you do no, this? this is... Ah! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I did. Well, uh, so this is the picture. Yeah. Was there a line of people waiting to duplicate this? No, no, no. I, I, I was very aware of people, but I didn't know what I was doing. But yeah, Nancy's standing outside of the of the city building, and do you notice the music in the background? I didn't notice it. Amazing Grace again. Okay, but but this time on a weird, I think a synthesizer. Okay, but it's but it's it's kind of discordant. It's kind of discordant and so subtle that it's almost like like you didn't notice it. Yeah, I didn't. I, yeah, I missed it. Um, it, um, um, and and I think it's kind of strung out, so like you really have have to be listening for it to actually like so it's a great musical choice so she says and, matthew and he turns to her and this and, is where we're uh, gonna this is where the rubber meets the road we're gonna find out if he is a pod person or matthew and he is a pod person and he person. points at her and does the sound i did a moment ago i won't i won't burden the audience with my dulcet tones again <laughs> sidebar the sound of a pod person So ended the sidebar. 
I prefer the ambiguity of the thing and kind of the hopefulness of the thing. Yeah. We don't know. We don't know if there's a way to stop the thing. Um, right. And I, I guess one of the things that viewing this movie has helped me realize is I do like movies with a little bit of hope, but also that can embrace ambiguity. I'm not probably 100% consistent on this, but when that happened, I was like, oh, I don't like that ending. And it could be just that I like Matthew as much as I did. And I like Nancy and I was sad because that's it. That's it for her. I mean, no. the ending to me says that's it for Earth. In fact, that's it's over. Game over. Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, well, no more I, MASH sequels. No more. There's no chance we'll get Donald Sutherland to return. Well, I, I got to tell you, I could not disagree with you. I, I suspected that this was yeah, going to be the, the Because actually, contention. that scene is the movie for me. Because when I, as I kind of said at the beginning, when I first watched it, I was very entertained by I, I, I was totally into the cat and mouse, no. hide and seek. Like, like, that really caught my imagination. I didn't see the ending coming. I, I kind of bought into the hope. Yeah. <laughs> and, <laughs> but when the rug is pulled out from under you, it's a horrible feeling. Yeah. Now, I'm saying that to you, Jason. But that's what makes it a great horror movie. I'm not. I, I, I'm not saying it's not. I'm not saying it's not. Uh, I, I mean, okay. So it's something that when a film takes us to a place that we that we don't want to go. Yeah. Like, I mean, I kind of I kind of expressed to you that one of the things that makes the Omen going back to the Omen, what made the Omen actually an effective film, even if 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 you don't, which you know, in terms of that kind of very fundamentalist view of yeah. Antichrist and all this kind of thing. Okay, you don't believe it, but what makes it a horror movie is that what if suddenly whoops it's true right and, I mean and, and and that film sort of violates because I like the omen and I, and I and it doesn't end with any ambiguity but the film didn't promise any hope either that's true you know that's true. so uh so for me and I'm not saying it would have been ineffective had it done that but it didn't tease me with that you know what yeah. I mean and so so I so it doesn't quite violate my rule but but this one for some reason I felt enormously dissatisfied with that ending now can I ask you how the original ended yes you can and um uh uh, and I will tell you that story in order to tell you how they came up with this one. Okay. The original Invasion of the Body Snatchers, the original cut, the original Invasion of the Body Snatchers was directed by Don Siegel, yeah. who was a, a actually actually a, a great minor director. He directed a lot of Clint Eastwood's uh, 70s films. He directed uh, Dirty Harry. He directed Escape from Alcatraz. What was he his name again? Don Siegel. Okay. Uh, he also did John Wayne's last film. I mean, he did a lot of films, and, uh, and that was one of his first ones. And um, the original ending of Invasion of the Body Snatchers, Saul Bunnell, it's not Matthew, I can't remember the name, the first name, but Kevin McCarthy, who we've seen in this film, yeah. his Bunnell is running through the streets and he jumps onto the back of a truck and the truck is full of pods and, and there's all these cars passing by and he just starts screaming, you're next, you're next, just like the character was saying in, in this, in this yeah, film. Yeah. And the original ending that was intended was uh, a close-up of him kind of going crazy credits. The studio hated it and insisted on a more upbeat ending. An ending like what you're talking about. Yeah. So what they did is they went back, because most most of the original film is done in voiceover of Kevin McCarthy's character, Okay, you know, kind of voicing over, you know, it, it was a day like any other kind of thing. And then, and then at the end, he's in the, I think he's in the police station, mm -hmm. or, he's, or he's in a psych ward, I can't remember which, and he's telling the story to the police.
police or to a psychiatrist or somebody and they don't believe him and then a police officer comes in and says hey we just we just stopped a truck on highway seven and it's full of pods oh it's true and then they the police all rush out to go and and put an end to all this foolishness okay but, but siegel was forced to shoot that okay he, did, he didn't want to do it so when 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 kaufman came up with this ending i don't think it was in the original script okay but when he when he came up with this ending he came up with it because don siegel and kevin mccarthy oh because don siegel's in the film too by the way he has a cameo okay. he plays the ta- he plays the taxi driver but don siegel actually he and kevin mccarthy went into um uh to philip kaufman's his office or whatever they met with him and they both kind of expressed their feelings about the original ending of the film and how that's not what they wanted to do okay and kaufman said well this time we're going to do it. We're going to do it right. Okay. So it was actually the 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 makers of the original film, the the, the primary actor and the prim- and the director of the original film, who told Kaufman because I mean they were into the making of this of this remake. Gotcha. And uh, and they they advised him, you know, if, if if we had ended the film the way we wanted to end it, it would have it would have ended ambiguous. Yeah. Like Benell would not have been uh, replaced. It would have just ended with him yelling at the screen saying, "You're next. You're next." Yeah. Fate. Maybe he'll go out and maybe the human race will be saved. This film, there's no ambiguity. It's over. Well, I think so. when you explain that, it makes some sense to, to me as to why they chose to do what they did mm. um, to honor the original vision without without necessarily aping the original ending. You know what I mean? So they, yeah. again, going back to that use of a good sequel, I'm not a good sequel, but yeah. a good remake, where you yeah. where you reinterpret things in ways that are new and interesting. And so, no, that makes sense. Uh, if they yeah. already done the, the positive ending, and yeah. they didn't want to just do the original amb- ambiguous ending, then, then it makes some sense well and, and to see i mean i my emotional reaction to the ending is the same as yours yeah but but that's why it's good that's why i mean that that ending has haunted me for you yeah and, and 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 actually it's why i keep coming back to the film because whenever i watch the film i i always end up liking these characters all over again yeah. and and i end up uh getting into the suspense all over again but of course the back of my mind i, I know that, that you know that that in the end um what we're doing is we're watching them figure out how they're going to die yeah, because yeah they're not because they're because they're going to fail yeah no um, i mean because he, i think i think it's an effective horror film but but also in the same way i mean there there are frustrations sometimes to a good horror film when when, when everything's done well and so i mean i don't have any problem with the the ending from the perspective of, of filmmaking yeah. just personally it didn't it's, not, it what, didn't, it's not what you wanted <laughs> it's not what i wanted it's not what i wanted I, I do not buy the story i don't know if you read this the story is is that only donald sutherland knew that oh. that's what they were going to do and that and that um, uh, Veronica Cartwright's reaction was her real. I don't buy that because oh, no. her reaction, her reaction's great. <laughs> oh, she's a great actress. Um, yeah, but no, I don't. I don't. That doesn't make a lot of sense to me, especially with with the the Kaufman Siegel story you just yeah. told me. Um, I, I what I imagine happened was that they made that decision. Kaufman was really excited about it. Guess what we're gonna do today, guys? Yeah, yeah. And we're gonna pull the rug out from underneath everybody again. Uh, but that and film then, does. That film does this. Uh, you're right. The film does pull the rug out from under the viewer a lot and then the credits no music yeah and to this day when i watch it that scene happens and then i sit there and i watch the credits roll by and i sit in silence i mean because you're a person now well but i mean in 1978 people who went to see this movie that last scene would have occurred and then they would have just been sitting in this dark theater with no sound at all just 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 names rolling by yeah now so we've covered this film we've touched on the original film now a lot of people i don't know how much time you want to spend on this 
a lot of people like to spin this movie into some kind of an allegory or metaphor. The, the 50s version is supposed to be about McCarthyism or, or about communism. This version is supposed to be a little closer to the in, intent of the author, which I can't remember. I only, I didn't bother with as much research as I usually, as I did on the, the thing, for instance. I didn't read the story before right. the podcast. But the intent of the novel, to the extent that I've read about it, seemed to be about conformity. Yeah. Um, yeah. And as uh, it was a criticism of conformity, right? Yeah. Do you see either film as being obvious metaphors for anything? Um, no. Roger, Roger Ebert thought he saw something. Se- several several reviewers of seven in 78 thought they saw something. Leonard Maltin as well. I, I, I've read those. I, I, I've been aware of that for years. I, I do have a specific opinion about it. Now, I did read the original story. I've not read the original story, but I read about it. I do think that the, the author of the original story was trying to make kind of an Orwellian statement about yeah. About communism. However, the original story is, um, I guess, that the pod people. Well, there, there's an interesting element to it. The the uh, the pod people can only live for five years, and then oh, they shit. and then they die, and they are finally convinced to leave. Okay. So the, so the story has a, the original short story has a happy ending. Okay. Which I mean, so does the original film, but that wasn't intended. So that's kind of interesting. Well, maybe this um, ending is happy too, because everybody is much the peace reigns. Right. On right. New, right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> This emotionless world. I've seen the original more than a few times as yeah. well. Because and actually, I, I I love the original. Like the original is is I could say equally as effective. Which is you know for 1956 and a low budget film is kind of surprising. But I I would encourage you and everybody else listening to watch it. Yeah. You'll be surprised. You'll be surprised how entertaining it is. I really think that the that the uh, the McCarthyism uh, and, and even the communism, like like all of those political metaphors, are things that people were reading into it because it's what they were experiencing at times. Yeah. I, I don't think that that's really overt at all. Because, I mean, if you look at it this way, okay, some people see it's referring to communism. Some people see it as referring to the people who were hunting out communism. Yeah. Well, certainly both of those things can't be true. Well, I would argue that actually, at least in terms of films, neither of them. People just see what they want to see. Now, I don't want to criticize that either. No, Because no. actually, everyone brings themselves to the film that they want. Yeah. I, I don't see those. Well, I, now, I agree with what you just said about conformity, though, in a general way, absolutely. Well, I, I mean, I agree, but what you just said about the viewer bringing themselves to the film and being unable to divorce themselves from themselves, I think that makes a lot of sense because when I was reading about the historical critiques of the film in 78, people were saying that it had this obvious message. However, the reviewers weren't saying the same thing about what that message was. Yeah. This kind of brought me back to that idea that Tolkien talks about when he was defending his work against the charges of allegory or metaphor, right? Yeah. It's like, I think what people are mistaking is applicability of a story right. to a lot of different human experiences. And so you can, you can, you can, you can use this story to illustrate trials in your own life if you want, if it fits. And that's fine because it's a story with a broad applicability, you know? Oh, and I, I, think, I think that, I think that's the, I think that's why people had so many, that's why, I think that's why so many people thought for sure it was about X, but nobody had the same X or not often when I was watching it, I wasn't like the author really saying you know right yeah. but i think what the author is really saying is run they're aliens chasing 
you. I think that's what, yeah. you know, yeah. uh, and, uh, and I think that that message is simple enough that it can be poured into a lot of different viewers ideas about, about yes. film. Um, anything else you want to say or you want to jump to the verdict? Uh, well, I mean, I, I, you know, we didn't say anything about the cinematography, um, but there, uh, I, I do know that they were trying to go for a kind of noir film, uh, feel. If you remember the scene where they're down by the pier and you see their shadows on the, oh, yeah. uh, before you see, before you see these little, uh, these little bodies running around. So, you know, there were a lot of really cool, um, uh, shots and, uh, because what they were trying to do is they were trying to recreate the kind of noir feel of the original film, but okay. in color. And, uh, and, and I think that, th that they achieved that. I think as a whole, I think it, it, it all works quite well. Yeah. So yeah, I think it's, I, I think I'm with you. The verdict. Three, two, you take it. And now the verdict. Uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers is a movie I would recommend very, very highly. I would, I would say that it's not a perfect film, but it, it does most things superbly. And there's very little to complain about. I think that uh, horror films, it's, it, it's often hard. And I've, I said this in, in, in previous podcasts, it's very difficult to find a really well-made horror film that is made in a smart way that really, really affects the, the viewer. And, and this one really, really does that. This is one of my favorites. So I would, I would strongly recommend this film and the film upon which it is based to any listener out there who really likes it horror. And while I made a lot of heavy weather about the final uh, shot in the film, that isn't to be seen necessarily as a criticism of the film or to imply that I disliked it. I think this is a very well-made horror movie. Um, and I think one of the things that a lot of good horror movies require is a core of characters that you care about and like and invest in. And this has that in spades. So as you travel with them, when the rug gets pulled out from under them, it's also pulled out from under you. And I think that the film is very effective at creating that. Uh, so also with me, yeah. See this movie? See the original? That is the verdict. Join us next week when we watch. We don't know. We don't know what we're going to watch yet. So I'll, I'll, I'll fill that in later. Do we, do we know what we're going to watch next? Well, it's, it's your turn, isn't it? It is my turn. Um, I mentioned Porky's. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> um, uh, let's see here. What was I thinking? What was I thinking? Um, you know what I want to do since I've got it? I want to do The Wolfman. Oh, the original? The original. Okay. Yeah. All yeah. right. So I'd, I'd, I'd love to do that. Join us next week when we cover The Wolfman from 19 earlys. Um... <laughs> I don't know what the date well, is. I think it's 40, 41, I believe. 41, okay. Uh, so from 1941. And uh, try to watch it before you join us. If not, you know, be perfect spoilers. Um, all right, guys, bye. Bye. <laughs>